Yeah, amen. Children, now's your time if you'd like to go to your classes. I forgot we had classes again. It's good. Okay, which one do I go to? It's not, no? I always uh, look forward to uh, a new year. I'm not the kind of guy that's going to try to lose weight, exercise, and all that stuff. Although I'd like to do that. Uh, but I, uh, every new year, I, I, the whole year before, I, I start gathering up some things that I want to read next year. Because the year before, I had already planned for the year I'm living in. And a book that I'm going to start tomorrow... It's called Renovation of the Heart by the man by the name of Dallas Willard. Dallas Willard is one of the more important Christians that I've ever met. And he's going to be with the Lord now. But uh, I just want to read the prelude to, to this book because it kind of sets up what I feel the Lord would have me share this morning. He says, when we open ourselves to the writings of the New Testament... When we absorb our minds and our hearts in one of the Gospels, for example, or in letters such as Ephesians or First Peter, the overwhelming impression that comes upon us is that we're looking into another world and another life. It's a divine world and a divine life. It's life in the kingdom of the heavens. It's just a world and a life that ordinary people have entered and are entering even now. It's a world that seems open to us and beckons us to enter. We feel its call. The amazing promises to those who give their life to this new world through their confidence in Jesus leaps out to us from the page. For example, we read Jesus' own words that those who give themselves to him will receive living water. The Spirit of God himself that will keep them from ever again being thirsty, being driven and ruled by unsatisfied desires. And that this water will become a well or a spring of such water gushing up to eternal life. Indeed, it will even become rivers of living water flowing from the center of the believer's life to a thirsty world. Or we read Paul's prayer that believers would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that they could be filled up with all the fullness of God. By the power at work within us that is able to accomplish abundantly far more than all we can ever ask or imagine. Or Peter's words about how those who love and trust Jesus rejoice with an indescribable joy 
when with genuine mutual love pouring from their hearts, ridding themselves of all malice and all guile, insincerity, envy and all slander, silencing scoffers at the way of Christ by simply doing what is right and casting all their anxieties upon God because he cares for them. The vision's clear and no one opened it can mistake what it means. But while all is clear and desirable, we must admit that in many that in many historical periods, as well as today, Christians generally only find their way into this divine life slowly and with great difficulty, if at all. I believe one reason why so many people do, in fact, fail to immerse themselves in the words of the New Testament and neglect or even avoid them is that the life they see there is so unlike what they know from their own experience. This is because even though they may be quite faithful to their church and the ways prescribed, and they really do have Jesus Christ as their only hope. The clear New Testament presentation of life we are unmistakably offered in Christ only discourages them and makes them hopeless. So why would this be? Surely the life of God that God holds out for us in Christ was not meant to be an unsolvable puzzle. It only leaves us with the explanation that for all of our good intentions and strenuous methods, we do not approach and receive that life in the right way. We do not comprehend and convey the wisdom of Jesus in the Bible about the human being and about its redemption by grace from the destructive powers that have come to occupy it in all of its primary dimensions. It really isn't true that where there's a will, there's automatically a way. Of course, will, will is important and crucial. There is, a, there is needed to be an understanding of exactly what needs to be done and how it can be accomplished of the instruments for the realization of that life and the order of their use. Now, that, you read that much and you say, I want, I want to know some more about that. And that's what the book's about. This morning I want us to look at what I believe to be the key um, instrument to the realization of the life of God. Uh, let me just say this. God doesn't want anybody to be religious. I mean, that's not what he wants. But he does want us to know him and walk with him and experience his life. And that key instrument to the realization of the life of God, I believe, is the cross of Jesus. The book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. So I would say, what did he know would be accomplished on the cross that would give him such joy. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians that the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. The word perishing doesn't necessarily mean going to hell as much as it means wasting their life and missing why God created them to begin with. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. I would ask, what does it mean to be being saved? And how is the cross the power of God toward that end? He continues, we preach Jesus Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block, to the Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Greeks and Jews, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Paul refers to Christians as the called. 
And I would say, what are we called to? One of my favorite scriptures in all of the Bible is in Ephesians, of course. Uh, 1, 18 and 19, where he prays for the church and he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart will be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of God's calling. And what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? It's a big one. And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? Now, that Paul wants the church to live in expectancy that what God calls us to, we will experience. He reminds the Thessalonians that faithful as he calls you, he will bring it to pass. Here he's talking about their sanctification. But I ask again, scripturally, what has God called us to? Do you have a clear thinking when I ask that question? Well, he's called us to this, this, and this, and this. And the reason I ask the question is because um, if we don't think in terms of God's calling and what God has called us to, how can we expect or hope for any of these things to come? Paul writes to Timothy and he challenges him to take up the eternal life to which you were called. That's in 1 Timothy 6, 12. And then later on in the chapter, he says, take hold of that which is life indeed. And he's talking about reality. Eternal life isn't going someplace when you die one day. Eternal life is knowing the Lord. It's a quality of life that you experience while you walk the earth. It continues after you die. But you better know it before you die. Because that's what it's all about. So he says, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. He reminds Corinthians that God has called us into fellowship with his son. He tells the Galatians that they were called to freedom. Peter, when he writes, he says, God has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And he quickly adds that we were called to God's eternal glory in Christ. These are just a few things that that scripturally we can say that God has called us to. You know, Pastor John has been preaching a series on... uh, Discerning the body of Christ. And so I want us to look at the passage that, that this theme comes from. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And I want to read verses 23 to 21. You know, it's interesting that within the first century after Christ has died, buried, and been raised, and the church has been formed... That you got problems in the church. I mean, I don't know why that should surprise me. But it, it just, it just. And so Paul goes and he starts these churches. And then he hears, man, it is a mess back there. And so a lot of the New Testament is Paul writing back, particularly Corinthians, because they had a few issues. And one of them was the way they acted during the Lord's Supper. 
So this is what he says. He says, for I receive from the Lord that which I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread and we had given thanks. He broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after the supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drank it in remembrance of me. For as often as you, Paul is commenting now, he says, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a man examine himself and let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. But he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgments to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number are asleep, which is a spiritual way of saying they die. But if we judge ourselves rightly, we should not be judged. Now. Paul says, let me tell you what Jesus told me about the Last Supper. He told me what he said. And he said, took the bread, he he broke it, he gave his disciples. He said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, when I study, I always look at other translations to see how other people. And and a couple that I found in, in this particular area, write it this way. Jesus says, this is my body. Which takes your place. Or this is my own body given on your behalf. He talks about what Jesus said when he gave the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. Here again, other translations would say, this cup is the new agreement ratified by my blood. This is the new covenant established and set in motion by my blood. And he tells the church, every time you eat and drink in communion, you are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. But he warns him, whoever eats and drinks, eats the bread, drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the blood and the body of of the Lord. Now, what does this mean? I'm not sure I understand all that that means. I think it means a lot more than I can grasp. But but when I read, looked up in the message of how Eugene Peterson paraphrased these verses, this is what the message says. It says, you must solemnly realize what you must solemnly realize is that every time you eat this bread and every time you drink this cup, you reenact in your words and actions the death of the Lord. You will be drawn back to this meal again and again until he returns. You must never let familiarity breed contempt. Anyone who eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord irreverently is like part of the crowd that jeered and spit on him at his death. Is that the kind of remembrance you want to be part of? Examine your motives, test your heart, and come to this meal in holy awe. I kind of like that, you know. It's not, a, it's not an exact translation, but I think it captures some of the spirit. But, but Paul explains it. Who, who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself... If he does not discern, and that's a different word than the word judge, if he does not discern the body rightly, as some translation 
say he's not discerned the Lord's body rightly. For this reason, many are weak and number, number of even have, have died. And then he adds quickly, but if we discern ourselves rightly, we will not be judged. Now, now what has captured my attention is that when we study this passage, Paul stresses the importance of discerning the, the Lord's body rightly. And alongside that, he stresses the importance of discerning ourselves rightly. If we're not to bring judgment on ourselves, he joins the two together. It seemed like he's saying that to do one is to do the other. To not grasp the importance of this, Paul explains, is the reason why many in the church are sick and some have died. But there's two elements in communion. Why didn't Paul include discerning the cup rightly as well? I understand that the cup represents the shed blood of Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. But, but what about the bread? I, I know it represents the body of Christ. But what's the significance of our Lord's body being nailed to the cross? Paul just stressed to us the importance of discerning the Lord's body rightly and tied it with discerning ourselves rightly. What didn't the Corinthian church understand? What don't we understand? Well, the best commentary on Scripture, I believe, is other Scripture. And so I just want to look at a few passages. The first one is in Acts chapter 26, verses 12 to 19. This is Paul before King Agrippa. And he's sharing his testimony. King Agrippa's kind of curious about this guy who used to be a rabbi who's now one of those Christian guys. And so he brings him in sort of for entertainment and, and King Paul just tells his story. So I'm going to pick up in verse 12. He says he talked about how he was persecuting the church. And uh, doing his best to, to kill as many Christians as he could. He says, while I was thus engaged as I was journeying, journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests, at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Is it hard for you to kick against the goads? And I said, who art thou, Lord? I mean, I hear the voice. Who are you? And the Lord said, I am Jesus. Who you're persecuting. Now, he was persecuting people. But Jesus said, you're persecuting me. But arise and stand on your feet. For this purpose, I've appeared to you to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things that you've seen, but also to things in which I will appear to you, delivering you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. Now, this is the part I want you to hear. This is what Jesus told Paul. Well, he was Saul at the time. He later became known as Paul. He said, I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, in order 
that they may do two things. Receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Consequently, King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but I kept declaring both. Both of these messages. To those of Damascus first and at Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, even to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. Now, Jesus told Paul, that he was sending him to minister to non-Jewish people of the world. To open their eyes so they can turn from darkness to light. From the dominion of Satan to God. So they can receive two things. One, the forgiveness of sins. And two, an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in Jesus. And Paul said he kept declaring both everywhere he went. Now, now I know that we receive forgiveness of our sins because of our faith in the shed blood of Jesus. I've heard that all my life. I believe that. I know that. The question I raise is, do we receive an inheritance because of our faith in the sanctifying power of God, of Jesus' body as well? That seems to be both part of the message that Paul got. And if so, what is that inheritance? We need to understand that to have a relationship with God, we have a problem. God is holy and we're not. Our behavior has been less than perfect because it comes from a nature that is less than perfect. What we do flows out of who we are. So at the cross of Jesus, God dealt with both issues. The shed blood of Jesus purchased forgiveness for our sins, the wrong things we've done, and, and, and behaviors that we weren't necessarily proud of. But the body of our Lord took care of our nature, who we are. Right. Hebrews 10.10 10 says this, By this will, referring to God's will, We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Galatians 1, 21-22 says this, Although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind toward God, I would add, engaged in evil deeds, yet Jesus has now reconciled you in His fleshly body through death in order to present you before Him, before God, Holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Now that's, that's true. In the Last Supper, when Jesus gave His disciples the bread, He told them, this is my body which is for you. This is my body which takes your place. This, this is my body, my own body given on your behalf. At the cross. Jesus took upon His body the punishment that rightly should have fallen on me and on you. 
He did it as our substitute. And then obeying his father by going to the cross. God is both just and the justifier now of all who put their faith in Christ. That is an amazing. Talk about the wisdom of God. No one could have even imagined that he would do that. Your sins have been forgiven because of Christ's blood. But your nature has been changed because of his body. You have an amazing inheritance because of your faith in Christ. You're in Christ and he's in you. God sees you as holy and blameless and beyond reproach, reproach because he looks at, when he looks at you now, he sees Jesus. You are co-heirs with Christ, not only having an eternal home in heaven in the future one day when you die, but we have power for living the life that's supposed to be lived as a child of God here on earth. Now in the present, it's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. Now that's power, a big power. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians One, verses 30 and 31. By His doing, referring to God, by God's doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. He tells the same church later, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things passed away, behold, new things have come. What old things passed away? You need to think about that. You need to know that. They're gone, man. You don't got to deal with it. Don't sign that telegram. That's, you don't have to. What new things have come? Discovering these things, these answers to these two questions. What's gone? What's come? Who I am now as a child of God? This is part of the adventure called the Christian life. And it never gets boring. Never gets boring. In Christ, you are not what you have experienced in your past. Your past does not define you. In fact, in Him you have a new past, the same past that Jesus has. That's big. And he dealt with all the enemies of your soul on the cross. He dealt with your old sinful self. He dealt with the power of sin. He dealt with our flesh patterns. He left, dealt with the world system. All the things that pull at us have already been nailed to the cross and dealt with. They really have. That's part of the new thing that you learn. You're not what others say you are, including your family. Now, that's not a time for somebody to elbow their husband. Paul says, 
We are God's workmanship, his unique expression of himself. Created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand, before the foundation of the world, that you would walk in them. And only you can do that. There's only one you. Got to find where I left off. He reminds Timothy. This is in 2 Timothy 1.9. He says, God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Man, we're part of a big story. Big story. God is, I mean, we're getting ready to move into 2018. That's amazing. I remember when it was all supposed to come to an end in Y2K. The Apostle Paul writes about Jesus in his first letter. And he says this. This is 1 Peter 2, 24 and 25. He says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your souls. I like that. I like that. Remember, remember Paul's prayer when he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened so that you would know the surpassing greatness of his power that he has toward us who believe. The power of God is called grace. And it's available to all who believe. We're talking about some serious power. We're not talking about just being nice. We're we're talking about living life. We're talking about being free from myself. And all the mess that I am. It's available to all who believe. God's grace is free. It's a gift to be received But God's grace is not cheap. It costs God the sacrifice of His only Son so we could have it. Cheap grace says you can know God's forgiveness without repentance. That's not true. You cannot. Truth, belief, true faith... Is demonstrated by repentance. To repent means to change the way you think. To be going in one direction and turn to go in another. It's returning to the shepherd and the guardian of your soul. As Peter describes. You and I need a Savior. You cannot save yourself. You might want to write that down because it's true. Jesus is the author and the perfecter of faith. So we must look to him and depend on him to teach us how to live as God's children. That's why he's living inside of us. 
He willingly went to the cross so He could live God's life through us as we walk the earth. That's what it means to be a Christian. Not to believe a bunch of stuff. Experience the stuff. Enter in. To experience God's life, we must surrender control or the governor our lives to Him. You must surrender. It's not a head belief. It's a shift in government. Cheap grace says you can be a Christian without the cross and you cannot. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Grace is a person and his name is Jesus Christ. He took our place on the cross so that we could be forgiven by a holy God and indwelt by his very spirit. His death purchased this for us. And we must never forget that. God says in Jeremiah, My people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living water, in order to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Hopefully that's not true of us today. We're not being driven and ruled by unsatisfied desires. We are drinking deeply from the life that is ours in Christ. We're not looking for love in all the wrong places, as that old song used to say. And some of you would never heard of that song. But it, I used to sing it. Not well, but I sang it. We're not doing that anymore. We're not trying to get our acceptance from other people anymore. We're not oppressed by fear or feelings of inadequacy or anger or bitterness or unforgiveness or guilt or shame. The cross of Jesus has set us free from all that. By His wounds, we have been healed. That is why Paul tells the Christian, the Corinthian church to discern the Lord's body and to discern themselves if they grasp what Jesus accomplished on the cross through His shed blood in His body, their identity and their actions will show it. They will know wholeness in their body and peace in their soul. A quote that has captured my attention for years was said by an early church leader, And he said, the glory of God is man fully alive. And I said, you know what? I've tasted that. I want that. A man that's a pastor now and has written several books named John Piper. His probably most famous quote is that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. That is what it means to be fully alive, to be satisfied in the Lord. I got the Lord. 
He meets my needs. I'm not stressed out. He's got it. And He's got me. My prayer for you, my prayer for myself in this coming year, is that we would experience more and more of the inheritance that is ours because of our faith in Christ. We've been sanctified, which is a past tense verb, through the offering of the body of Jesus once and for all. As the writer of Hebrews tells us, new things have come, Paul reminds us. The Lord has called us into fellowship with His Son. Let's show a hurting and a dying world the reality of eternal life. As we demonstrate our freedom to serve one another and to serve the world in love. It's going to be a good year. Amen. Thank you.